I'm Tatum Law, a sophomore student at Stanford University, and this is Infodemic, a Stanford conference on social media and COVID-19 misinformation. Infodemic was a virtual conference that took place on August 26, 2021, in which leaders in public health, medicine, ethics, and social media discussed ways to mitigate the COVID-19 misinformation and disinformation epidemic. This single-season podcast will feature all the Infodemic sessions as single episodes. The following is one of the conference presentations, entitled, Do Social Media Influencers Affect Vaccination Rates? The moderator was Dr. Jamie Rutland, pulmonary critical care physician at West Coast Lung, and the vice president of the Association for Healthcare Social Media. Dr. Rutland was joined by Jessica Malati Rivera, infectious disease expert and science communicator, as well as Dr. Sanjay Juneja, an oncologist and social media influencer. Their conversation was extremely insightful. Enjoy. All right, guys. So listen, you know, what we're going to talk about today, obviously, is we're going to talk about whether or not social media has an influence of whether or not people are going to get vaccinated. So again, we got a couple of guests. I'll let you guys introduce yourselves. I'm Cedric Jamie Rutland. I'm a pulmonary critical care physician in Southern California. My name is Jessica Malati Rivera. I'm an infectious disease epidemiologist and science communicator and currently at Boston Children's Hospital. And I'm uh, Dr. Sanjay Janeja. I'm a hematologist and medical oncologist in Southern Louisiana and uh, the doc on uh, social media. You know, what I think is interesting about the group that we have right now, we've got different aspects of the country. We've got different goggles on in terms of what's going on in terms of this pandemic. And again, the major question that I have for you guys is, do you think that social media makes an impact on educating people enough to want to get vaccinated? Jessica, what do you think? Yes, absolutely. I have actually seen firsthand the fruit of effective science communication to transform people's minds, to bring them out of fear and into confidence about the vaccine, everything from flu to even COVID-19 and HPV. I've seen these transformations happen right before my eyes in a wide spectrum of people, right? I've seen it happening among vaccine hesitants. I've even seen it from people who were historically anti-vaccine, which is just to tell you kind of the power of the platforms and and the sources in which people get information and the power of effective science communication. Yeah, I agree. I mean, we live in a time now where people feel a lot more proactive about wanting to learn about things and engage and be collaborative about their health rather than just, you know, maybe 50 years ago, just this is what you need to do. And part of that kind of trust is just like the education factor. And I, I think that people feel more confident People are entitled to mistrust in general across the field. Everything is has more to be desired. So part of building that trust is with that education. And instead of asking questions like, well, we said the vaccine, why wouldn't you get vaccinated? It's like, why would you? Let's tell you all the reasons and how this works and how it can have a big impact on the community, people you love and on yourself, even on a biochemical level. And those are the blocks that way we can kind of bridge this gap on things in the past and, show, and involve people in collaboration with their decisions rather than kind of just to patriarchal, this is what you need to do. Yeah, I agree with you guys. I mean, I and Jessica, your point of seeing firsthand people change their minds through the pandemic with vaccination. I know you get those messages, Dr. Janesha, I know you get those messages of people who have said, hey, I got vaccinated because of you and because of what you said. And those are great messages to receive. More than that, for social media, it provides access. It provides access for so many others to be able to get the education that they want. I always say to people, You know, we want to teach before telling. We want to teach people the process of what it means to get infected, what it means to get vaccinated, and what we're doing before we tell them to, because they're probably going to get to the same conclusion that we all got to long ago. 
Yeah, I feel very strongly that the work that we do should not be dumbing things down, right? I want to give people the benefit of the doubt that they want to understand that they want to make these choices out of a place of knowledge. And so my goal in my education is to increase people's science literacy and to increase people's ability to discern what is good data, what is bad data, even how to read charts, because the anti-vaccine movement and misinformers are very savvy and have been able to use some of the resources that the science community has used for so long to demonstrate efficacy of things and safety of things, and they'll manipulate them. So teaching people to be discerners of that truth is is much more powerful than just dumbing it down. Agreed. Yeah. And and and. The dangerous part is where a bit of in, like you have a little knowledge or a bit of information, but it can be used in either side. You know, one thing I was confused about a lot was I don't want to get the vaccine. It's going to be encoded into my own DNA. And that makes me scared when, you know, we know that it's, it's viruses that get encoded in your DNA and cause problems. 95 Hodgkin's is your EBV related, you know, head and neck cancer, cervical cancers are HPV. So we know the viruses do that, but somehow the knowledge of DNA, RNA, virus encoding, it somehow got swapped by saying the virus does that when in fact it's just a blueprint to create a protein like we do all the time. So that's, that's mm-hmm. where that education is huge. And for me personally, all my content, you'll see anything relating to the vaccine is explaining what the statistics mean or why they're broken down, why we need a booster with IgG versus IgM. And then it can kind of appreciate, okay, this is like foundationally, you know, where these things come from and people deserve that and have a right to question until they have some, you know, understanding that's their bodies. And that's one way we can really facilitate that. Yeah, you know, I think one of the strategies that a lot of misinformers use is they try to weave in some truth to what they're saying and what they're presenting in addition to increasing that production value. But then there's always this gap where they go from point A to point G. And there's always that explanation that needs to take place to explain how they got there. And I really find it also interesting that a lot of these informers aren't the ones who are directly relating to these patients on a daily basis like we are, like we see, whether in Louisiana or California or Boston. So I really feel like, and I wanted to ask you guys this, do you really feel that we have to respond to every single video that gets put out of someone at a school board or someone at the assembly committee hearing. How do you guys feel about that? Absolutely no. I think that if we were in a position to be constantly debunking everything, we would never sleep because the work is truly endless. And I do think that there can be some additional harm by breathing more oxygen into these lies, giving it more airspace and giving it more time. That's why I think instead of just doing the game of whack-a-mole and debunking, which is necessary at times when things are getting pretty sticky online, front-loading social media with the good data and and almost anticipating the logical fallacy traps that people are going to fall into because we're expecting some, you know, snake oil salesperson to come on the internet in the next week to misinterpret this reading from a clinical trial, et cetera. But it's definitely requires discernment to know which things are worth the time to break down and, and really debunk. Yeah, it's important to address to a degree because when we use the term misinformers, I like to say like they have information that people believe and they make an argument. Maybe it's naive, but I don't think there's an intention on people that are sharing to like do bad for, you know, mankind. It's more they sought out respectably information. But then when that information is extrapolated and used incorrectly, that's where there's detriment. So the strategy is one, like validate the things that are basically precipitating these, say, one theory. 
because there is some truth there, like you said. And then where the evolution of that, you know, may be problematic or or not factual to just say, oh, that does make sense. But this is why the next phase doesn't. For example, I had a comment yesterday that said, you know, you're spreading misinformation. It wasn't the Pfizer that was approved. It was BioNTech. They made the vaccine together, obviously. And now that it's FDA approved as a new brand name, and they were like, and plus this vaccine hasn't even been made, it just got created. And I had a whole bunch of people supporting that. I don't think they're supporting that in malice or like whatever, but they just believe that. So then my response was just appreciate that actually there were two different companies that made the same vaccine. And then it has a new name only because it's now FDA approved. So again, it may be naive, but if we believe that people just want the best for people and someone truly believes for some reason that it's not supported or whatnot, then to validate the concerns and then debunk that extrapolation is key. You know, somebody commented that saying like, you don't have the time to talk about all the dense stuff that came to what we're talking about. And it is difficult. And that's where social media is nice because you can break it down and have, you know, mini series. But even something like statistics, it's a very difficult, it's a difficult field. Like med students, biostats is the thing they dread on their board exams because you really have to have a sound appreciation for standard deviation and error and things like that. And those are things that are a little more difficult to address. But I think overall, the more factual information and and the breakdown is, it just, it has to just kind of seep into your skin. And I'm, I think we're seeing that. I'm seeing that in my clinic where I'm in Louisiana. We're the least vaccinated state in the country for quite some time. And and I'm seeing people that felt strongly one way, just learning over multiple visits and say, hey, I want to tell you, I got my first one because of all the things you broke down in the last three visits. Because, you know, they're usually on chemo, so it's every week or whatever. And that's really encouraging. So I extrapolate that, maybe incorrectly, to think of the population as a whole and believe that other people are doing the same. You know, when the pandemic first started in the beginning of 2020, and the government and the respective leaders of this country were delivering information. I want to ask you guys something. Do you think, and hindsight's 2020, but do you think that the information that they provided, do you think the way that they provided the information was the best way? Or do you think that an alternate strategy should have been done? I know it's hard, but I think hearing people talk about this, I think it's important. So I have gone on the record multiple times criticizing the lack of investment in things like science communication from a federal level, especially because we provided such deep pockets, such amazing resources for Operation Warp Speed to manufacture and produce and distribute the vaccines. What was missing was a complementary vaccine communication package with that to go with each state so that the states weren't once again kind of fending for themselves to create their own public health trust campaigns and social media campaigns and influencer campaigns. It just felt very much like how we were managing the pandemic, pretty patchwork. And so we're seeing kind of now the investment or at least the the acknowledgement with the U.S. Surgeon General mentioning that misinformation is a public health emergency, that we need to be addressing it. But I will say that many of us in my space, especially those who've worked on vaccine science for a while, anticipated this. We knew this was going to happen. And, and to see it be an afterthought means that many of us are kind of doing damage control in a constant, constant hamster circle, it seems. Yeah, it's challenging because, and this was a hard thing for me to accept, but like, we're all somehow somewhat narrow minded from the healthcare industry, as far as we obviously operate with healthcare and the health of our community first. But then if we're somebody that doesn't have any healthcare experience or background, you think economically first or financially. So having the, I guess, the humility to realize there are factors that I don't understand. Uh, Surely there's a more ideal way in hindsight, you know, how something could be addressed. And then you have the problem with what is the metric of this is bad? Like that varies between people. So if somebody says this is, you know, a lot of people say it's not that bad because the percentage of people that actually die from it are X, Y, Z. But then 
get people that had stroke. You had all these people that, you know, we have a waiting list to get into our hospital for people that are young and dying because our ICUs are full. So there's all these metrics that can vary. And that part, I think we're all very humbled by and hopefully will continue to come out and bleed out over time, not literally, to where at least this generation or anyone involved in this realize that there's just more to it than any single metric like, oh, it's not that fatal. And then I wonder sometimes, what is that threshold when people say how long it took to get approved, it wasn't studied? What is the threshold for a virus that comes in lethality or whatever your metric is, where it's bad enough to where somebody says, I need it right now. Like, give it to me. This is a world crisis. Because to a lot of people, including us, it, it was a world crisis. It is currently. We're, it's terrible still in Louisiana. And it's, it hurts. You see people that you love just overnight turning south. Clearly, that's not enough to ring the alarms, you know, even really in Louisiana to get vaccinated, even though it's happening in our home. So that's a curious question is where does that switch flip to say this is something that's really bad and I need it. And when we can appreciate people's metrics and maybe be able to hone in on those more then we can say like, this is why this is so important because people vary on those metrics. All excellent points. As we all know, the pandemic is ongoing. And Dr. Junasia, in your state right now, I am sure that you are bombarded with a lot of clinical issues that you have to deal with on a daily basis. I want to ask you from a personal perspective, how do you deal with that pressure and how do you use that pressure to drive your education and teaching within your practice? Yeah, you know, it's really hard because like you said, I mean, we have so many people that would be curative intent and their whole lives ahead of them, you know, 30s, 40s, that would be addressed properly by standard of care if they were able to get their treatments in time, get their biopsies. And now it's such a burden to live with a cancer diagnosis for a family, but also have a superimposed burden of if this weren't in 2021, maybe my son or daughter would be alive or my spouse. I hate that they're burdened on top of already something so scary with something like that. It's definitely led to, you know, I collaborate closely with Mayor Broom in Baton Rouge and and have worked with the governor's office because, again, you have to highlight you don't know what someone doesn't know because they're not there. And so the more you can share and and shed light on that, I do believe people are intrinsically good. I I believe that we we have just good people, humans are, are good. And that the more they become aware and you kind of probe into those empathetic cues by highlighting those problems, the mind only knows what the eyes can see. So that's kind of what I'm trying to do or share on social media. And it hurts, but you've seen a lot of things now circulating on social media of the people in the ICU saying, this is what I believe. This is the whereabouts where I grew up in my community and how we feel about something. And now here I am. And I wish this message reaches one person. I hope this is it to spare you from where I'm at now. I'm very humbled by those people and the strength it takes. So I think in different fashions, all of us are are just trying to show a piece of something that somebody may not see in Minnesota or wherever and probe into that you know human empathy. I think that that will help us work together towards something in a collaborative way. And Jessica, for you too, you know, you have a very large social media following, nationally known. You explain a lot of difficult statistical concepts. What about that pressure on you to continue to put out content that is consistent with what you previously have done to deliver that same message? I mean, how do you deal with it on a daily basis? I heard you earlier, you know, you've got a kiddo screaming in the background. So I know that that could be difficult too. I think it's my own. So tell me about it. I mean, it's not easy. 
And I think that there have been times when I've been working too hard and I've had to take breaks. I'm thankful that I'm not doing this work alone. I know that the burden does not fall completely on my shoulders. There are so many like-minded science communicators and scientists who are on social media who are doing this work. And in many ways, we have created this kind of network of support to help each other and to kind of back each other up if it gets overwhelming or if we do need a break. But it's the work that I've been preparing for my entire career, to be completely honest. I studied emerging infectious diseases in graduate school and worked a lot on pandemic prediction. And so it really still feels like an honor of a lifetime to do this work. And I think that also having boundaries is something that I'm working on because I know that there is this pressure to constantly produce content and constantly respond. But I can't. I have a family of two young kiddos who need me to be available. I have a spouse. I have work that I need to do throughout the day. And my mental health is a priority too. And, you know, I worked at the COVID tracking project throughout the pandemic, which was truly the best experience of my career. But that work weighed very heavily on a lot of us there too. And having real burnout from being immersed in very depressing data was a lot. So I'm very aware of the need for breaks. And I try to exercise that discipline as often as possible. Other questions that I have for you guys is, if you could deliver one message to your audience, what would that message be? By far, the message would be, Feel good about something. And the way you can feel good about anything when it relates to medical and health decisions, and I see that a lot with cancer and, and treatments and chemo and non-chemo options, is just really to learn and to educate. And now, you know, we live in a time where we have the World Wide Web, which is good and bad because there is no king of fact versus fiction. Anyone can make a statement and it, you wouldn't know any different. But it really does, I think, provide security. And it's corny, but the phrase education is empowerment. You get empowered with education. And I think... In my case, you know, with the vaccine and everything else, I remember when I was first giving vaccines to my first son five years ago, I was nervous. That was very humbling to me, too, like about the human aspect and the emotional aspect, because when you're making an active decision for something versus letting the world happen in a passive sense, sometimes that can be uncomfortable. So I was also humbled because I realized I have an understanding of like statistics and data and stuff to like be able to make an informed decision, but somebody may not have those same like biostats background. So it's challenging. There's no doubt about it. But if you seek it out and if you want to learn, there's stuff up there. You could DM me and I can direct you to whatever. But if you're moved and you did have a change and you learn something and then you facilitate that to the people around you that may have shared the same sentiment you did before that, taking on that journey yourself, that's how we survive as people. You know, every civil civilizations have come and gone in the past and, and you read all this stuff in history. That's how we survive. Potentiate something that you have learned with, you know, an active grind. And again, it goes back to the misinformed and misinformers. They're trying to do that too with something that they truly believe and learned. But if we can continue to educate ourselves and respect one another and not antagonize, but rather address, you want to believe, fingers crossed, that we'll all together be moving in a right and healthy direction. I agree with everything you said, Sanjay. And I would add that I think that we are in an age where expertise is kind of a subjective term and people just love to jump on soapboxes and opine on things that are really outside of their expertise. We've seen an emergence of armchair epidemiologists and armchair virologists and armchair every kind of expert you can imagine. And I would say in the context of social media, I would encourage you know my followers to pause 
and to investigate, right? I think that there's a lot of power in waiting to say something before you jump on a clickbait, really intensely triggering topic, really probably outdated and not verified source. But there's power in knowing that having a moment to recognize that you're having a visceral emotional reaction to something is probably a good sign that you need to wait and read it a little bit more. Because we are very aware that the pandemic itself is very frightening. If it's not frightening to you, I would think that that was strange. But we also know that misinformation feeds on fear. And so to be able to discern, am I reacting because this is something that is so alarming and so outside of consensus that I just want it, I need to know the truth and I'm being lied to? Or is this just really deeply upsetting because the situation is actually deeply upsetting and I need to look into this further? You know, I think in science, we, and I can say this as a member of the science community, trust science is kind of a meaningless term and believe consensus can be kind of bullish. And so I think that that's why we can say to folks, hey, I'm not saying to just follow us and just repeat what we're saying, but just wait before you react, wait before you spread something that could potentially be much more harmful than good. I mean, that's so right. And visceral reaction, if anyone doesn't know, that's that emotional kind of feel that jumps the rational feeling. And you're exactly right. We're emotional beings. And that should be a huge checkpoint for all of us. And just like, quote unquote, misinformers, but really, you know, as we said about where their harm may be at. On the other side, like you said, there are those that mean well, but it seems more like bullying or pressing on about why wouldn't you and guilting someone. And and that's also emotional driven as well. So the more we can remove that and just trust, you know, the backbones of science and data and collaboration, I, you have to believe that we all be feel, feel more comfortable going in a direction together. Yeah, I mean, if we're causing people to feel shame and to feel like they're being judged for not having the same kind of degrees that we have or the same kind of expertise, we're losing. We're not actually helping people. And I think that empathy, like you mentioned earlier, has to be one of the kind of undertones of the way in which we communicate and the way in which we empower people to seek this information out. Because shame-based kind of motivation to seek information sends you to the darkest places of the internet. Yeah, you guys make excellent points. Thank you so much, Dr. Rutherford. And I think we have five minutes left for any questions. You know, Sanjay, something that you mentioned earlier made me think of a science communication workshop that I attended that mentioned the truth sandwich. Have you heard of this concept of helping with, you know, it's, it's, it's like a method in debunking where instead of it just being focusing on all the bad things, you start with the truth, you kind of state the facts, the reality, the data, the points in which you're trying to make you recognize the misinformation and you say how incorrect it is. And then you kind of close again with a validation of what is actually true and correct sources to look at so that you're not just spending the whole time giving the misinformer, the misinformation, whatever it is, that much airtime, but you're kind of, again, starting with the truth and ending with the truth. Right, exactly. You're you're validating the points because a lot of times there are points. And that's why, again, I don't think it's naive. Like, I think that's where somebody deep down, like they mean well, and then the points were defunct or, or whatnot. Are there any good websites for information and states about the vaccines and COVID in general? Yeah, I've seen some interesting articles from National Geographic, actually, that talks about it. Osmosis is a big health-oriented place on YouTube. Facebook Health has a place as well where you can learn about COVID more fundamentally. And there's a startup I'm with, Doctorpedia, where we've had a lot of COVID and ID experts on YouTube. You can find them. So there's a lot of information. YouTube has really taken a big initiative as well as Facebook to stuff out there, as well as many academic institutions, for sure. Public Health Communications Collaborative just popped up in my email, actually. That's a great resource. They've got a really robust website with lots of details on on the vaccines. This is a 
popular question. Well, I was going to say, there's one question, how to deal with haters on social media, and do you guys just ignore them or provide the accurate info? You know, I get that a lot too, the question, haters probably too, but no, I don't <laughs> call it hating, I, I joke, but but my friends ask me that, and I think it doesn't just apply to social media, but it applies to life in general. If you're ever unsure about something, decision you're making, whether it's like relationship-wise, career, whatever, you really have to take a step back and say, like, are you operating with integrity? What is the deep core aim for what you're doing? And I know, like, you know, I have three children and my wife's also a hemoc, so we, we're very busy, but I definitely feel moved to give this information that I know and I appreciate people have kind of reinforced with value or said it's kind of changed their life in one way with either iron deficiency and their restless legs is gone because they were on four meds and they saw the video. When you can do something where... As long as it's, you know, not, I believe, like fully in vain. I told myself if it ever becomes less about other people and then it becomes for me about numbers, this and that, I and I think a lot of us and Jessica, I'm sure you agree, are are truly blessed beyond we deserve. So like that's the checkpoint for really anybody that I tell people in mentorship is for the most part across the world, we're blessed beyond we deserve, especially if we're on the Internet in 2022 during the day, 2021. So when you have something that seems like it's not somehow giving back, I think that's a dangerous place, both for emotional health and everything like that, because then the backbone for why you're doing it becomes less about others and more about you. And then therefore those things will hurt more because it is just about you. I I don't know if that makes sense, but it's an application I've had in my life that really, I think, protects me more so with that stuff. How do you, how do you feel about Jessica? You know, I think we probably have different experiences with haters too. The vitriol that I am exposed to, you know, as a woman, I think even as a different kind of mark on me, is pretty horrendous. And I am grateful that there are ways to kind of create boundaries on these platforms, whether it's restricting them or blocking them or reporting them if it becomes abusive. But I have had to do that a number of times. I will say that the good absolutely outweighs the bad. The vast majority of feedback and content and questions that I get sent to me are really, really supportive. But I'm also very emotional. And, uh, you know, if one bad comment will stick with me for the rest of the day because it kills me to make somebody feel like I'm against them or something. But I also have to understand, too, that a lot of these situations are not based from like a logical playing ground. It's very emotional. And that's why I have said I I will continue to repeat myself and answer these questions over and over again, because I think that sometimes it takes that 14th time for somebody to hear it with grace and patience that these vaccines are safe, that these vaccines are effective. So it doesn't stop me from doing my work, but it does kind of factor into like, if it gets too much, then I have to set up some more boundaries. Yeah, it's a challenge. And and but you know why you're doing it. it. Like, you know, that's the key when you say, Oh, big farmer, you're sell out, you're getting money every time gets someone gets a vaccine shot. It's like, you know that's not the case and you know right. why. There's you, there's no kickback like it and and I hope that's something, you know, that I'm grateful for and everyone else I'm sure is very grateful for that you do that. And the second part is it's really neat how people support you and like I empathize a lot with some of the things you mentioned, but when people support you and on the comments and like, and and come to your defense, you know, it's encouraging. And the third thing is you hope that people see something that's ugly, recognize something in themselves. Like I don't identify with how somebody said that or how they treat or this is foul and they hopefully grow even collaterally. But I respect you a lot, Jessica, for that piece of it before everything. (laughs) Likewise. So I think leading by example is a great way to show empathy on platforms because I think that pre-COVID even, just based on elections and political drama and and dissension and, and division that we were seeing there, people speak with a sense of impunity that they probably would never embrace if they were talking to that person in person. 
and refraining from name calling and shame based language and getting into a comments war with somebody are ways that I can model how I don't tolerate that kind of behavior, but that I can also be kind to people who are very different than me if they're, you know, not being abusive, of course, and to listen and to constantly and be open to having people ask questions if they mean them well, right? So I think that some people will look at me and say like, why aren't you like so mad right now? And I'm like, well, sometimes I am, but I don't think that coming off as mad and rageful in a debunk is actually very effective, at least not for me. I find that if I'm going to do it with patience, I mean, sometimes it does really get under my skin and I'll invoke some sass. But I think that leading by example is probably the best way that I can continue to have the trust of my followers and also make it so that people know that I'm a human, that I have feelings too. I have kids that I love and, and, and hobbies that I love. I think a lot of times people like you and I get this bad rap of like, we're just people here trying to ruin people's lives and tell them that nothing can be fun ever again. And I'm like, I miss indoor dining more than anybody probably. And I want to do it as soon as I can, but I'm not doing it because it's too high risk for me. But people think that I just hate restaurants, right? And so to engage in a way that shows people that I am also deeply affected by this pandemic and this hurts me and my family and my enjoyment of my life right now, I think normalizes the fact that we are not just these bots of science. Yeah. And on the other piece, you nailed it as far as the personal aspect. Like there are some, I don't engage often. I think there's a distinction between just overt antagonism and somebody that may have like preconceived kind of understanding or or feelings about something that's a little aggressive. But a couple of times that very respectfully, I think of it as like a way like, okay, let's just get out this knot in the back. Like it's a knot that you just can't get out and stubborn. And four out of five times it's been successful eventually. And I think it's more, you know, I do that because I know other people may share the same sentiment and then they learn just by reading it, even though they didn't put the posts, but you have to keep, you have to channel that very safely. But again, maybe it's naive, but I just believe people are intrinsically good. And then when you find that ground, if you're introducing with something that is met with fervent antagonism at its surface, you find something else that you do connect on. I mean, we're, we're the same species and there's no way if you believe at all in evolution that, that there isn't some connection that can be facilitated. And I think social media has hurt that a lot because people do just kind of, it's one thing and onto the next rather than deep engagement. And then if you can get deeper that way, I think it's pretty constructive as well. Yeah. Let's see. What role do you feel industry can play in collaborating with physicians and academics in combating online information? Have you seen any good examples? I think this is where like, honestly, social, you know, medical influencers, whatever you want to call them, educators, I think this is where that unique niche is and where it's something that's needed because you have this kind of partition in your mind. Like these are the things that I read as far as articles and reports and news and media. And then you have this other side where it's like, okay, these are what physicians are saying through the CDC and this and that. And then you have people that are actually, you know, like I'm triple board certified. I'm a practicing physician, but at the same time, I try to make my content more fun and relatable. So it's somewhat entertaining, but then also like be a source of information as a bridge. And I, I, it's very humbling to me and my wife, like she would never get in front of a camera, but she's always the one who's like, oh, people really need to know about this. Is a cute way to like help people appreciate it from this angle. She is also now thinking about those things to, to how can we present this in a way that's fun and engaging? And that's why it's, I think, so humbling and, and, you know, an honor to be in the position that we're in. Because we can provide something, almost a threading the needle that people really want and need. But then the classic ways of delivery, again, are met sometimes with a little bit of antagonism, even on our parts to some degree, depending on the source, what channel somebody's citing on news. If you hear they're from Fox, 
Some people might say, oh, I'm not going to believe you know, at all. And then that's not fair either, right? That's the same thing, but in the other direction. So it all kind of goes back to the same thing before. It's just the less we can have knee-jerk emotion, make things more relatable, um, it can really kind of fill that void, which is otherwise has a lot of fervent magnetism. Yeah, I've seen a few good examples. I'll say even from like the industry of social media, I think the fact that some of the platforms have now created ways to report specific COVID-19 health misinformation. I think the more specific we can get about reporting bad stuff is a good way to kind of protect the space. But I also seen like really great collaborations between big brands that are trying to elevate science communicators and doctors. Uber did one really cool with, I, I participated in it to help kind of gain access, provide, you know, more driving access to vaccination sites. I could name a number of brands have, who have done that. And I think that we're seeing that more. I do think even the White House is trying to kind of do some more collaborations with people who are helping combat misinformation using ex- subject matter experts like Dr. Fauci doing Instagram lives with influencers to kind of help answer some questions in like 10 minutes or less. And so there are some good examples. I think, again, this is probably part of the damage control you know, umbrella that I mentioned earlier, because had we gotten ahead of this and anticipated the kind of essential work of science communication and specifically vaccine communication in the Operation Warp Speed so that states were prepared for these campaigns, I think it probably would have been a little bit better. Now, I will say vaccine misinformation has preceded, obviously, COVID-19 and kind of goes hand in hand with any infectious disease outbreak. So we knew it would happen, but we could have had more tools in our toolkit. Indeed. And it's crazy. Like, I think social media is the way that that bridge happened because, you know, I was on the Uber campaign, too. I think Spike Lee was behind it as well with, with getting education out there. And they reached to me on reached out to me on social media. And then because of my social media, the mayor's office and governor's office in Louisiana, like saw, you know, that article. So it's crazy that this actually is a platform, not just a social media platform, but a platform to bridge government and companies yes. and influencers and doctors. It's just such a unique thing. I, I wonder if they need a, a deg- you know, degree in it because it's such a resourceful tool that we can really maximize things for communities, small and big. And it's an honor to be a part of and anyone listening to this, to, you're a part of it. And you have literally, you have potentially a very unique way to deliver or facilitate something, even if it's not, you know, speaking in front of a camera or whatever, you, you obviously are a unique person and you may have a unique way that people receive it better than anybody else. So if you're on the fence about like, I want to share this, or I want to get, you know, my thoughts out on this, but I'm not sure how like people have your thoughts and they need to hear those mm-hmm. thoughts and then be able to collaborate and build on it. And, mm-hmm. and, and that's the beauty of, of social media is you find both like-minded people, but people that are different enough to where you both grow and learn each other's points and anyone has the capacity to do that. Yeah. So I try to do my education more towards my demographics. So I'll look at the demographics of the ages and male, female, et cetera, and talk about disease specific things. So like with, you know, anemia and iron deficiency, a lot of women are told, well, if you're having cycles, that's why you're anemic. There's nothing to do, which is just not true at all. Like you need to get an iron profile if you're iron deficient, even if you're not anemic. All the data shows you can still have market fatigue, exhaustion, restless legs, you know, and all these things. And I have patients all the time that are replete their iron and, and they're better. So that that kind of goes into, you know, the healthcare system has a lot left to be desired. And I don't know that it's necessarily even going in the right direction because it's so fragmented with insurance companies and pharma and all this. So unfortunately, that just means like patients do have to be proactive. And it goes back to what I said at the beginning. There's some degree of truth to mistrust because of, you know, while we're still trying to work out the 
kinks is an understatement in, in the US at least uh, with the healthcare system. It needs to be collaborative. People want to be proactive with their health. And one way to do that is just to, you know, somebody said, you're just going to make hypochondriacs of everyone. But I've had a whole bunch of comments that say I was you know, iron deficient or B12 deficient, et cetera, kind of changed everything. So just get the education out there. People will trust doctors better, I think, feel more empowered about their health. And it's something that's, you know, beautiful to see kind of unravel. Yeah. I mean, to answer the question briefly, yes. Well, one, I don't think COVID is getting out of the headlines anytime soon. And two, my work will be ongoing with COVID as well. And I think that there'll still be a space for that work. But I am a mom. And I think that in this next kind of phase of pediatric vaccines that are in the horizon, there's going to be a whole opportunity for more conversations about that. And then just in vaccines in general, just because that's what I especially love to talk about and to research. So I definitely think it'll be a primary story on my social media. So I'm just really grateful that we had this opportunity to have this conversation. I think that knowing that there are opportunities to have really good things happen on social media should make people feel confident that it actually can be a great source for information. There was a trust in science research report that was actually done by 3M not too long ago that shocked me when their results showed that trust in science had actually increased in this last year. In a time where it seems so divisive and when it seems like the anti-science movement is growing, I do believe that there is good things happening on social media and that so much power can happen in really good content that is shared by trusted sources. A little bit out of character because I'm not usually the optimistic person, but I'm going to end with optimism. (laughs) Oh, I love that. Thank you for everything you do. And I just appreciate everyone being here and wanting to educate themselves and learn. And if you're especially in college or younger, like definitely more ahead in life than I was at your age. So you're going to do great things. And now we have a platform to be able to do it and be heard and find people that just like really constructively build you up and I hope you use it as part of your both professional but even like character development because it's something very unique that you can use in a productive way. Thanks for listening to this session of Infodemic, a Stanford conference on social media and COVID-19 misinformation. We invite you to listen to the other important discussions and presentations that occurred at the conference, each available as individual episodes of this podcast. All 10 sessions are archived together. Just search Infodemic on the Academic Life and Emergency Medicine website, alium.com, or through summer 2022 on our website, stanfordinfodemic.org. A video recording of the entire conference is available on the Stanford Department of Emergency Medicine YouTube channel. Thanks for joining us.